Welcome back to Pounding the Table. On this episode, we'll be discussing the Delta variance impact on the stock market, look at some key earnings from last week from Fang. We're going to have a huge focus here on Square, and we're honored to welcome special guest co-founder of Square, Jim McElvee, who's going to be joining us on the show. And make sure to stick around to the end. Tony's got a new trading mentality. Is the bonsai dead? Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen, to episode three of season two of Pounding the Table. This will be my last episode as a single man, because next week, the world and myself will find out if this brings out a new refined and mature Avi. So, Tony, let's just jump right into what happened last week. Of course, we got to first touch on the Delta variant, which has been more than a hot topic of late within my family, of course, with my wedding coming up. But for all of humanity, this recent data that's been leaked from the CDC is interesting, to say the least. So I know you had a tweet a while back about this. So let's jump right in. Yeah, I mean, all I said, Avi, on that tweet was just the numbers, right? I always talk about the numbers not lying. And this is not a pro or anti-vax like statement in the slightest. It's just, of course, right, the flu vaccine for A and B are 37 and 50% effective, respectively. And like, if you think about that, and we get one of those every year, right? And if you knew antibodies lasted about four months on average from Israel data, and things keep changing, we locked down, we opened up, we locked down, we're talking about locking down again. And all these different things are happening. And I think that it's just a consistent headline at this point, and it'll happen for a long time until we really finally eradicate whatever next variants come because, right, every we're on this four or five month cycle now. So as long as the vaccines, like people get boosters and everything happens, like it, you know, will likely be fine. My concern is everyone just like going out and about acting like everything's com completely fine when like, you know, the Delta variant has just been rebranded as like what happened in India as COVID. So it's interesting to see all these different things go on. But I really would say that, like, make sure you like understand the numbers. And if you're at risk, right, like pay attention to that more so for somebody who's not at risk. But the fear is that everyone becomes at risk because the, you know, the strains might get worse. Yeah. And I know you were saying, you know, pre-show here that you were unfortunately correct with your tweet and your assessment of that. How, how does this like impact the markets, right? Do you think this has been priced in? Because this kind of news came out, I think it was late Friday or over the weekend even right now. And so has the market priced this in, the CDC leak? Well, I mean, I, I it's so shocking for me to think it's a leak, right? Like the last episode, we talked about this, the Israel data. The episode before that, we talked about 95%. Like these are... I just don't know how people didn't see this already. I mean, like the data was there the whole time and you just had other countries saying it, but only when it comes from the CDC of the US does it actually matter. That's the egocentric US standard and it's wrong. Yeah. But you know, if you really look at the math all over the world, it's it's a different story all the time because Delta variant came from India. I hate that it's become so politicized, right? Like, and everything is right in life. But my friend who just has been living in Thailand for several years, shout out Nate, coming to my wedding. And he was saying just how politicized this has really gotten here in the US right. compared to other parents. It's so politicized. The world. So politicized. I mean, the, the best thing here that, you know, just based on how viruses usually work is that the mutations are supposed to get less and less deadly. So hopefully that's the way that it goes and it just phases out. And then everyone has... COVID Z, which is just like, we all just have it. So we don't get COVID anymore. I don't know how that really works, but hopefully, right. The new strains that continue to come out, if they do, will be less bad. But 
what's I guess good for a lot of work from home names and especially like tech in general is that the headlines are back. So, mm-hmm. um, and just in that regard, whether or not it's actually impacting the world overall, it's a good news flow for these names. Yeah, and speaking of tech, right? We just talked about last week, obviously massive earnings. We're gonna at the end of this podcast, we'll touch on what's coming up next week, of course, but. Fangs last week, Facebook, Amazon, Apple, Netflix, Google. What happened with their earnings? As we said on the last podcast, we're talking about market cycles and things that happen. Like these summer months are when the big Fang report. And this is when people like to run those names into their reports. And so you had a lot of companies just absolutely dominate. And you had a lot of companies miss expectations that were incredible like raises from the last couple of years, right? COVID changed everything. And now we're sifting through the mud and figuring out where things lie in the post-COVID slash mini little bit of COVID world, you know, just a side of COVID versus it being the main dish of the media mm-hmm. and, and the world right now. Um, so, right, like Facebook beat expectations, but there's a growth slowdown there. I mean, obviously, like you go from a lot of these reports, like these percents year over year, you have to take it into context, right? Because like year over year from COVID now would matter, right? Like if you were already up 200% like in 2020 on whatever quarter it is. In 2021, if you're up another 100 or 200%, you're growing on that exponential base that we talk about and that's fantastic. So I think a lot of the market though is just like worried and disconnected, right? Like CRISPR's earnings reports were fantastic. I wanna touch on that for a second because just one collaboration from Vertex gave them like 800 million in profits for this one quarter. Granted, like there's not expectations for this to happen every time, but they have so many down the pipeline. And so that barely even moved on Friday. Granted, that was already known. But if you understand like the psychology, how people react to these earnings reports, like Amazon was crushing Apple, Facebook and Google beat the hell out of their EPS, which was fantastic. But that's because of a few nuanced things. And so you had companies that were absolutely dominating in the pandemic, like Amazon and Facebook, which completely makes sense, right? Like more time at home, more Facebook, more time at home. You can't go to your stores. You buy on Amazon. But a lot of those were so priced in because those were very easy plays, in my opinion. It doesn't mean they're not going to go higher. I just think that that's why the earnings reaction wasn't like such a great, huge run, because especially these names, like they have to do a massive beat to run because everyone's eyes are focused on them. Like analyst reports are very close on a lot of these names because they've been followed for so many years. So they had that run up into their reports and then they just sold off as like price discovery. Right. Amazon missed by forget like not much at all, but it was just the fact that they had a miss. Right. And so they see slower rates, Facebook and Amazon. And that's normal. I mean, I think that's in the post pandemic world, things will settle out. And then once they settle out, usually they sandbag it and then they'll start raising estimates and it goes back into the cycle. So we're just moving through one of those business cycles. What's really cool that you look at something like Google, something that's so big, they were able to adjust a lot of their accounting that started this year. And so because the lifespan of their server and network equipment went from like three to four years, they destroyed EPS and like they're going to beat on EPS for the future now. So like that's why it went up so much. You have to change your revenue and your profit target and your multiples for the rest of time because that was a CapEx cost that happened and you knew it was like every three years you have to change this much and it costs this much at that scale. And now it's every four years. So it deserved to run. And honestly, I think Google's still probably the most undervalued name out of all these. Yeah, I think the street obviously wants to see that growth, right? Which is inevitable that Amazon's, these companies that have been around for a while, 
they're not going to bring on millions and millions of new subscribers every single year. It's just, there's only a finite amount of humans, yeah. right? And so, you know, people are going to grow it, but then if it goes up 1%, that's billions and billions of dollars versus, you know, looking at a high growth that we typically talk about, of course. But one thing companies can do, obviously, is kind of like spread their wings, right? Into these new legs that we talk about. So we saw Netflix, right? Their revenue went up 19%. Uh, to 7.34 billion. But what's really exciting for me, obviously, they're adding this new leg of gaming, which I was surprised they hadn't forever on. I always said they should add some sort of social element too to see what your friends are watching, because I think that would just add to that addictive you know, behavior that humans have over and over again. Uh, you mentioned with Google, right? They're coming out, they bought Fitbit. Let's see if, you know, what they're doing here in healthcare. They got a new phone coming out. And so there's a lot of new cool things that they're doing as well with the autonomous driving. Obviously, Waymo has been around for a while, but it's starting to become more and more into fruition. Another huge area, obviously, is China, right? That's been at the forefront of all of these headlines. We saw Tencent fall 10% from Monday of last week. Beijing had ordered to give up their exclusive music license. We saw the education stocks like TAL. They slumped actually 25% because they had a ban on for-profit tutoring in China. And then we have the NASDAQ Golden Dragon China Index, which tracks 98% of China's largest firms listed in the US. That dropped 8.5% last Friday and another 7% on Monday, which is the biggest two-day sell-off since 2008. So I'm wondering here, are we starting to reach a bottom? I know, Riley, you were hyping up uh, NEO last week, and then we saw the VWAP here. Tony was the Tony indicator with the VWAP mm -hmm. on PDD. So is this the bottom here for China, or you think there's a little more to go? Yeah, I mean, last week you asked me the same question, and I said, no, I'm not buying China here. But I bought China last week and I didn't buy that much because this is one of those things where it's like it's not a great like super sound idea. And it's one of those like you're buying into a lot of geopolitical risks. You're buying into like CCP risks. And that's all I can say for, you know, political correctness uh, nature. And then like you're buying into, first of all, FUD. A lot of like people are freaking out, selling everything. Like you had all those education names get absolutely destroyed. You had fear of delisting IPOs on the US market. And that, in my opinion, is going to continue until like you get those companies start reporting like GAAP, like third party verified US accounting and everything. Like you need a lot of that stuff to get better because there's that's why there's just a fear in those ADRs is because people are like, well, this education company can make X whatever revenues growth, but is it real? And mm -hmm. a lot of those are getting screwed. I mean, you saw like Tal and I don't even think GSX is still listed. Like there's a lot of these names that got crushed and that's because of like, you know, being a bad company. And there's a lot of still good companies though. I mean, if you consider how large China is, how many people, the GDP there, there's no way every company there is fake. I mean, like what? There's, it's impossible. There's clearly money being made there. There's clearly people being in commerce and in the economy there. So I went long PDD just because like, and not a huge position size. I went with leaps instead of stock just because I don't want to risk that much cash in case it does go drop to 20 or whatever. So you have to understand that those risks are there. But if you play for the upside, that's why I use options for situations like that. Less risk in, same profit to the upside. I can sleep at night and I don't need to have 40 different positions in China to catch the rebound. You just need one if you like it. Um, the reason I like PDD is because of the revenue growth, the expected fundamentals, the fact that Shopee, Amazon, and a bunch of other companies are copying what they're doing in terms of like the group pay thing. Like if the B, the biggest company I like is C Limited. And if C Limited is copying Pinduoduo's thing, and so is Alibaba, and so is Amazon, clearly they're doing something right. And I, I, I mean, I think I would be remiss to not notice that. And so I do. And, and so if it, it may not work out, that's fine. But if this is the generational China bottom, 
Because if you look at like you know, HSI, the AD50, these things are down to like many, many year lows. Um, I think it's just a, a construct of like where the narrative goes in the for, in the future. But there will always be individual companies that succeed in China, no matter what, because it's not going away as a country. Yeah, I think it's a good play just because we'll see this week. We got a big catalyst, obviously, with Baba reporting early in the week, which we'll talk here at the end of other earnings that are popping up. But, uh, you know, we got one Jack with Jack Ma disappearing, then Jack is back. And we got another Jack coming up here. Jack Dorsey, of course, we're going to be talking about Square. And we got one of Twitter's co-founders here that we'll be talking about with shortly. But first, we want to just get into what is Square? Why are we so excited about Square? Why is Square at the head of the table? I mean, I think most people are familiar with Square, but I'm not really familiar beyond just the payment processing. So let's dive in here a little bit. So Square is obviously ahead of the table, and it's come a long way in the last year. But what makes the head of the table ahead of the table? Square is a very multifaceted company that does a lot of different things that are growing and it's creating this ecosystem. And the biggest companies, the best ones, create the ecosystem. And that's like those strong companies is because of their revenues where they are, the amount of users they have, the optionality they have in creating revenues from their user base and the ecosystem that they have. So in my opinion, the best way to think about Square is just this commerce ecosystem, period. And I want to talk about this from a higher level. So the democratization of finance and especially commerce, right? Being able to sell your goods and products to anyone in the world and anyone can be able to do that. And that's going to continue to push economies forward across the globe for the rest of time, right? It's become a huge shift. You see companies like Shopify winning out over Amazon. And that's because we, the individual, are succeeding in this time versus just these multi-faceted you know, corporations. Um, but Square is empowering us to do that. So instead of fighting against it, like we fight against Amazon with Shopify, we're pro-Square. I mean, one of my favorite things about companies is the vision, right? Like it's, it's most important, in my opinion, to think about where they want to take this thing. And the way that I think about Square, and I've heard this in many interviews from Dorsey himself, so Jack Dorsey, one of the founders of Square, along with Jim McElvey. And he's turning Square into a commerce ecosystem in the loosest sense of that word. And I would say the reason he's doing that is because he looks up so much to Elon Musk. And Elon Musk obviously founded PayPal, sold that off and started all these amazing companies he's doing today. But the plan for PayPal was to be this commerce ecosystem. And the fact that Dorsey looks up to Musk, regularly listens to Elon's quarterly calls, to me, the way that I heard it is that Square is going to become what Elon would have turned PayPal into, which is a money system where once money comes in, it does not come out of the system. It does not have to leave and that's it. You can do anything you want within the system. It makes it effortless, highly used, the most convenience, and that makes perfect sense, right? I have 45 apps where I've got cash here, a card here, stocks here, this, that, whatever, loans here. I don't have loans, but if I did, they'd be somewhere else. And so thinking about having to put those places all in once and making that use and the ease of that, how much more commerce and business will you do as an individual and also as a large seller or a corporation? Um, and that's the reason why Square's at the head of the table and why we're talking to Jim McElvey today. Yeah, Tony, we're starting to see a lot of this, right? You see these point solutions that are starting to come under one roof to create a much larger business, right? That optionality you're discussing. So looking right from Square's website, their five key business lines are within commerce, banking, customers, staff, and developers, right? So we'll touch on all of those individually very quickly because some of these are new acquisitions that they've brought on. It's very exciting to see. For most people that when you think about Square, they think about the payment processing, right? You go to Starbucks, you swipe your credit card and they make a percentage of that. But obviously, as we just mentioned, there's a lot more. So I think maybe start with the cash app. I'm a, I'm a Venmo guy myself, but 
I know a lot of the teeny boppers are, are repping that cash app. So why are people moving over to cash app? You think? Yeah, I think to me, Cash App is the Gen Z Venmo. So it includes financial tools that are available to all individuals, such as peer-to-peer payments, cash card transactions. So literally a card you can use to swipe and buy things with. Uh, Bitcoin and stock investing enables customers to easily spend, store, and send money. So it's that system that once you put money in, you don't really have to get it out. And that helps a lot because I'm tired of having 40 finance apps on my phone. I mean, I really like the brand here because I think when people think of Bank of America or Wells Fargo, you, you roll your eyes and you shrug because they're boring, they're old, they're dead companies, in my opinion, the way that they run and they, they honestly suck and they're all fraudulent. But if you think about a company that's focused on democratization, that's focused on the actual individual, that's why Shopify is doing so well. Amazon's a bully, Shopify's a solution. These banks suck, Square is a solution. And people know that. And that's why there's hype behind the brand. It's really hard to find hype in a fintech brand, right? Like thinking about they sell clothes off of Cash App and accessories and people are hyped about it. And, you know, the everyday person direct deposit, you can do that and get it one day earlier than a traditional bank. And it's now the number one finance app. And it's because all it is is just links to your phone. Super easy. Most people in the world have phones. It's not all this difficult shit. And you're able to succeed with it as an individual. So I think it's very cool. They have a lot of these hardware and software things that just allow you to do payments and, and being this network overall. You can do invoices if you have a large selling company, a virtual terminal. You can even have a website, which we'll talk about soon, right? Made through Square. Um, and then, of course, they have all the hardware to facilitate all that as well. If you have like physical locations, you, if you want to just like sell shit on the side of the road, you can have the little square thing that you can plug into your phone. It's very, very cool. We are the pot of the people. They're they're the bank of the people, right? If you, right. If you think about it, what they're doing, if you, like some of the acquisitions we'll get into here. Tidal was a very interesting one. It's kind of, you know, you see the Spotify's Apple Music. It was kind of like the, the last in line here of all of those streaming services. But what's really interesting is you got Jay-Z now. Now on the board, Beyonce, the Queen Bee, right? And what are they going to be doing with that? They want these artists to be able to sell merch. They want to be able to potentially buy tickets. My a big thing is I hope they acquire uh, like Eventbrite, right? So they can start selling tickets to concerts. Maybe they don't even need Eventbrite for that, right? But like what you're starting to see is this democratization amongst ha- helping these small artists that typically couldn't potentially make some revenue and they're starting to make some revenue. And even with their love of blockchain, perhaps with NFTs, right? Artists could start selling NFTs, which you've started to see. Uh, A few other subsidiaries or acquisitions that they just bought, uh, Credit Karma Tax. So they're going to be planning to add Credit Karma's tax filing services into their ecosystem. And the final acquisition I want to just touch on real quick is Weebly, right? So they bought this company a few years ago that helps these small businesses actually build their own websites within the app, right? So they're really creating this huge ecosystem. And then I know you wanted to touch on the most recent acquisition of Crew App. So Square acquiring Crew App is pretty cool considering this is a commerce ecosystem. So you want to have efficiency and optimization between the entire team, between the labor that you employ and also between customers and, and how to you know deal with all those invoices, deal with people communicating with you, especially if you're a larger team, um, because a lot of these are now starting to be larger sellers that are using Square. Um, and that's actually helping their gross margins a lot, which is cool. Um, what I like about this though, is that obviously people who are starting out these like individual small businesses, they're not necessarily always experts in how to do this. So having different tools that are provided by the same people in this ecosystem to help you manage with wages or help you you know, have messaging between your team and the people who work for you and the higher ups and management, scheduling, tracking, and paying your team members makes it a lot easier to just run a successful business. And that's the point, right? You want to democratize commerce, right? Running businesses. 
Um, and I also think this is going to help a lot when they really fully embed banking into their uh, entire suite of services. So that's going to flow not just into Cash App, but into the entire ecosystem. Square just announced a $2 billion buyback of senior notes, so which turns obviously acceleration of the stock downward. But according to management, the funds are going to be used for even more general corporate purchases. So more acquisitions may be coming, capital expenditures, basic investment capital. Who knows? Maybe they'll be starting to buy some crypto punks as well. <laughs> so, you know, we've seen crypto go up like crazy, then it came down and now it's starting to make some noise again. And obviously Square is very involved with it. They purchased a total of 220 million in Bitcoin to hold in their treasury. And Jack recently started talking about making a hardware wallet for Bitcoin itself. So I'm going to read his quote real quick. He goes, you know, if we do it, we would build this entirely from the open, from software to hardware design in collaboration with the community. We want to kick off this thing the right way by sharing some of our guiding principles. Cash app integration is obvious for us, but part of the solution, a smooth experience likely depends on custom built app that does not need to be owned by Square. We imagine apps that work without Square and maybe even without permission from Apple and Google. We have to decide to build a hardware wallet and service to make Bitcoin custody more mainstream. We'll continue to ask and answer questions in the open. The community's response to our thread about this project has been awesome, encouraging, generous, collaborative, and inspiring. What are your thoughts on Jack's quote there, Tony? I love how he's just bringing everyone into it, right? And my favorite sentence in all of that is, does not need to be owned by Square. That is the reason why it would be successful. The point of decentralization is to be decentralized, right? Like yeah, the reason Bitcoin is Bitcoin is it's super decentralized. You don't even know who Satoshi is. And that, and also is the first, it's one of the three ways to win, but those are why it's important. So I love that Square is trying to make this open source developer platform that's making this, like all these different crypto things. And they also have uh, squarecrypto.com where they're literally helping people build out projects using Square to fund these projects. And, and anything great that comes out of it will be part of Square in my opinion. So I think it's very, very cool to consider where they're going. And I think obviously a hardware wallet from a trusted company like Square is gonna be very, very huge. And also with them working on becoming a bank, right? Their digital wallet users will be, a hu will be huge. And then that could actually just generally rip crypto in general because if everyone has like this trusted hardware wallet source that they already use, you know, for cash app, for their direct deposits, for their stores, payment system and everything, it just becomes a lot easier because it's right in front of you and you don't have to leave the system. And not even talking just about like their hardware wallets, their crypto and all the cool things that they have coming, just things that they can innovate on today. When you look at how ahead of the curve they are in terms of technology and artificial intelligence relative to like the actual traditional banks, they pretty much have the data for every company that they service, right? They know the business's data every day. They can get capital to businesses in minutes if they need to. So if your business would need a loan, it's better to get it in seven minutes versus 60 days, just in my opinion. And obviously with way higher calculations, you can charge less because you have the artificial intelligence telling you this person's more at risk to default. This person's not at risk to default. You can loan this amount. Your total exposure of lending is this or that. And that's a lot of these banks get screwed. Credit Suisse, Wells Fargo, a lot of these companies, right? Like Wells Fargo stopped doing credit cards. These are all things that are coming out because there's issues with those traditional systems. And this is why Square is ahead of the table. It's disrupting and in improving on it and innovating on all of it. We said a bunch of positive news about Square, but we always want to look at the competition, the bear thesis potentially, et cetera, right? I was talking about how much I loved Venmo, but you came here with the quote talking about little Mealy versus SE comparison compared to Venmo. So why don't you spit this knowledge here? You got some stats to back this up here, as always. 
Yeah. I mean, I love, you know, numbers don't lie. I will say this a hundred times till the day I die. Square's cash app has outpaced PayPal's Venmo in quarterly downloads every quarter since launching Bitcoin trading in Q4 of 2017. And that's data from Sensor Tower. So verified third party here. That's huge, right? They have some investments in DoorDash, for example, and things like that. You can get a boost. Like if you buy on DoorDash through cash app, you get X percent off. So thinking about like how your credit card gives you 1% back. And like, these are all the things that they're implementing in very cool, innovative ways that are what it's going to make it be very, very, very successful in the future. And I think they haven't even really began to really touch on their profitability. I mean, they're growing and growing and growing. They have competition from PayPal and from Stripe and from all these different players. But the key is to be, once again, where the ball is moving. And it doesn't matter how much it costs you to get there as long as you can stay afloat. It's about what happens when you get there and how much you make at the end of the day, because that's how you value companies. And obviously, institutions believe this. 70% of Square is held by like the top institutions, in my opinion. They murder estimates like EPS they beat it all the time. In quarter one of 2021, their estimated EPS was 16 cents. It was actually 41 cents. So I think that they're really undervaluing, like the analysts are undervaluing where Square is going to be profit wise. It's just really insane to me just to consider how much they've been growing. If you really look like they're going to do 20 billion in, pro or in revenue this year, 2023, they'll do 25 billion, but their EBITDA is increasing too, right? So they're going from 900 million this year, to 1.8 billion in 2023. And what we know is like, if a company consistently beats on their EPS, they will probably consistently beat that. So like, as we talked about at the beginning of this, if Google changes it from three to four years for how long they have to change out their systems, if Square starts doing things like that, implementing, there's $25 billion in revenue that they're gonna be making in 2023. They're already making 20 billion. It's just like, well, can I get two or three, maybe four billion of that a year and then have that keep growing and compounding faster? Because their EBITDA is growing faster than their revenues. So that's like one of the constructs that you want to think about when valuing a company for the long term is maybe their revenues aren't growing so fast, but they're already at 20 billion. Now they got to think about strategic acquisitions and everything. And in a couple of years, they'll be churning out mad profit. You know quite a bit about Square. However, we wanted to dig a little bit deeper. And so... Fortunately for us, we have the co-founder of Square with us here today, Jim McAlvey, who is not only the co-founder of Square with Jack Dorsey, he's also involved in numerous philanthropic organizations and most recently authored the book, Innovation Stack, which is a book around what it means to be a true entrepreneur and what it takes to build a resilient world-changing company. So Jim, welcome to Pound on the Table. Hey guys. Jim, I'd imagine most of our listeners are, are familiar with Square, uh, but it's always fun to hear directly from the founders themselves. So if you could just share with our audience, how would you convey Square to, to those around you today? Uh, well, Square is basically economic empowerment. So it's, uh, it originally began 12 years ago as a way of taking credit card payments as a small business. Uh, it evolved into a whole suite of products that allow you to run a small company or even a large company now. Um, and then we've got this whole other division called Cash App, which makes person-to-person -person payments easy and fair. It allows you to trade stocks without getting front run like uh, some of the other stock trading <laughs> programs. Um, and then we've got, uh, you know, we've got other stuff in the works too. So it's, uh, but it's all basically around this idea of giving 
an individual with the same powerful tools that you know formerly were just uh, things that institutions had or big businesses. And Jim, you were born in St. Louis. Uh, I grew up in Minnesota, so we we both have the Midwestern roots. Uh, we also both co-founded companies that address this unmet need in the world. So yours being a $100 billion public company, which helps millions of businesses change the world in fintech, while Tony and I co-founded this podcast to help retail investors really navigate the market. So pretty much similar, you know, in a sense. But, um, you know, before Square, I wanted to take our, our listeners back to 2009, right? So you started off as a glassblowing artist. And not many people know this, but glassblowing was actually an, an idea that kind of Spark this idea for Square. And given your frustration of losing that first sale as a small business owner, now if we fast forward to over a decade, Square, now along with Cash App, helps millions of customers. Now, I have to be candid. I only had the opportunity to just read the first few chapters of your book, but I really love this quote that you said, if you stay within this metaphorical wall, you're a sane business person. If you leave the world of the known, you're either an entrepreneur or a corpse. All of those people I shouted to the airport, they were successful and respected, but they were singing the songs and not writing the music. So it all started with this phone call to your friend, Jack Dorsey. So I'd love to hear you know, how that initial conversation went from your memory. And did you imagine that it would grow into the size of the business here today? And how did you become from a glassblower to ultimately writing music and would change the way business operate throughout the globe? So a um, uh, couple things first. Uh, so Jack and I have known each other for 20 years. And Jack, after they kicked him out of Twitter, called me up and asked me if I'd like to start a new company with him. So that's how the partnership reformed. And it wasn't like a new partnership. I mean, I'd known Jack uh, since he worked for me at another company and we'd always gotten on. It had been a good relationship and I was kind of bored at the time. So I was looking for something new to do. I was working as a glass artist um, among other stuff. I mean, my degree's in computer science. So I had a few other things going on at the time. But what really happened was, uh, you know, Jack and I moved out to California and started brainstorming ideas. And we came up with one that neither one of us was very excited about, but we'd already hired our first employee. So he was going to start and we needed to get going. So I went back to St. Louis to pack up my stuff and move it out to California. And I was in my studio trying to sell a piece of glass to a lady who only had an American Express card. I lost that sale because I couldn't take the money. And this really bothered me. And so that's when the idea for Square hit me. I, I called Jack and I said, hey, look, you know, that other idea we had, like, I think we should forget it. And I think instead what we should do is make sure that I get paid. Like that was the whole thing. It was mm-hmm. just like me, me, me. Like, like let's let's build something so that I can get paid and maybe people like me can get paid. And the thing that we didn't know at the time was that there were millions of small businesses who felt like I did, which is that they were basically excluded. And um, you know, the reason I wrote the book is because there was a really weird thing that happened to Square about three or four years in, uh, which is that Amazon attacked us and they copied mm-hmm. our product and they were, you know, one hundred percent successful at the time of, you know, killing startups when they would you know, copy the product, undercut their price, and they had the Amazon brand. And we thought we were going to be dead. And then uh, amazingly, what happened instead was a, a year later, Amazon gave up. They uh, like, we beat them as a startup, which never happened. I mean, Crazy. it's just, it, it, there was no historical precedent for that. And so the question was, well, how does a startup beat Amazon? And, and why did this startup beat Amazon when no other startup have ever, had ever done it? Mm-hmm. And so that led me onto this, this sort of quest to figure out the answer. And it led me to find other companies that had had similar experiences throughout history. So the, the reason the innovation stack is important is because it's a phenomenon that explains how number one square survived and number two, you know, we're now a hundred million dollar company. You know, I argue that there's no reason we couldn't 10 X that again. And the 
sort of engine of that growth is an innovation stack, which, you know, I spent 300 pages explaining. Right. And that book was incredible, honestly. I've also read a, a lot of the chapters in this recently. And I wanted to pull a quote, you know, going right back into what you were just saying. I think just the approach that you guys took at Square, it's this first principles, you know, top down approach to entrepreneurship. And there's this quote that I think perfectly exemplifies the issues uh, that you guys were trying to solve goes, we want to allow millions of small businesses to accept credit cards for the first time. So we have to make it easy to sign up. We need easy sign up, So we have to design simple software and eliminate paper contracts. We have millions of people signing up. So we have to keep our customer service costs down. We need to keep customer service costs down. So we have to have simple pricing and net settlements and no hidden fees and no paper contracts. We need to have a low price. So we need to save money on advertising. So we have to have an amazing product and hardware so cool that people talk about it and that the product can explain without our help. Now that's amazing. And I think that a lot of great entrepreneurs take that very similar first principles approach to uh, you know figuring out how to make their mission a success. You know, I think Musk does this, a lot of other successful people do. So you could just kind of maybe touch on that a little bit. I think that was one of my favorite quotes of the book. Well, I mean, uh, you know, I, I've always had a lot of respect for Elon Musk and I've only met him once. Um, we didn't have a talk about innovation stacks or anything, but I've always looked at Tesla and frankly, SpaceX as companies that do the same thing. Mm-hmm. Which is, if you think of Tesla as a car company, you're wrong. You know, Volkswagen's yeah. a car company. You know, uh, Ford's a car company. You know, Kia's a car company. But what Tesla's doing, yes, they're building automobiles, but they're also doing it in a way that is so vastly different that there's no way that a normal car company is going to be able to compete with them. And in my book, I, I don't profile Tesla, but I profile Southwest Airlines, mm-hmm. which, you know, is an even better example of the same phenomenon, even in this you know, commoditized business where, you know, you're traveling from one city to another city. There are ways to do it in a way that's innovative and, and so dominates the market. And what people don't realize is that when Southwest was a small company, they were attacked by all these big airlines that, you know, everyone thought they were going to die. And instead they became the biggest airline in the country and the most profitable airline in US history. And, you know, they set all these superlatives and, you know, that's, that's frankly why I had to go out and meet Herb Kelleher because Herb was, you know, sort of the founder of Southwest. And he was the guy who, you know, sort of drove a lot of this innovation was there uh, during these critical moments. And I think like, I just wanted people to understand that it's possible to do this. Yeah. I think it's really interesting too, because you know, they, they took this customer first approach, right? I, I, used to fly Southwest all the time. And I think they were the first ones to do the free bags. They came on, they always had like really funny stewardess too, I noticed. And it just like made me feel good as a, as a customer. And I think, you know, dovetailing off of that, airlines obviously were pretty affected by COVID. And this past year has been insane for many companies, right? Uh, you saw, you know, revenue, stock prices, roller coaster all over the board. How specifically do you think that COVID affected you guys in this post-COVID market? How do you see that Square fits into all this? I mean, I hate to say it, but COVID was really good for Square. It, it, it hurt a lot of people, and I'm not making light of a you know pretty horrible disease. But for our company, it was huge. And at first, you know, Wall Street turned against us, thought we were in and they were in trouble. But what they didn't realize was that Square was able to mobilize its workforce to create a whole suite of new products literally overnight. I mean, we were releasing products to help, you know, restaurants that had closed get into the carryout business and, you know, delivery companies spun up. Like we, we basically had the arsenal to give to these small uh, companies who all, so when that started to play out, we saw this massive uptick in usage 
And then we saw them and tried to stand and uh, provide, you know, money, you know, direct payments to people. And these people didn't have bank accounts. So, you know, again, Cash App, the Square uh, ecosystem was called upon to uh, like we had over four million people who the U.S. government didn't have on their records that we had on our records. So we could be a conduit wow. for the stimulus money, which was hugely helpful to small businesses and, and, and to individuals. And again, this is something I, I, you know, sort of didn't highlight in the book, but it's in the book. And that is every company that I've studied who became a world dominating entity had a similarly treacherous beginning. You know, so Square started in the middle of the last recession, but like this one, this, you know, the, the pandemic has been huge for us. And if you look at the biggest bank in the world, that bank started in San Francisco a year after the great San Francisco earthquake. You know, think about that. Okay. So, you know, at the time banking was all on the East coast. Like if you, if you weren't in New York, you weren't relevant. And this little startup bank run by a kid who, you know, dropped out of high school at 15 years old, never had any formal education, was a produce vendor, decides he's going to start a bank. All right. Doesn't know anything about banking and builds what is today the model for banking. And as a, in other words, what you guys think of as a bank did not exist before this produce vendor decided to reinvent banking. And, and he did that right after the great San Francisco earthquake. So, you know, sort of these worldwide crises are actually pretty good for companies with innovation stacks because they're naturally able to move faster. And when everyone else is frozen or shut down or, you know, their businesses are half closed, if you're able to move even at all, you can get an advantage. And if you're able to move quickly, you know, you can, you can lap the field five times. Absolutely. And I think one of the main topics of the podcast, we always just go back to this, is how companies can reinvent themselves after they succeed in their initial missions or in something that's difficult and they pivot really successfully. So I know that you just mentioned all the new legs Square grew in 2020, but I know that even more recently, you know, you guys have done the title acquisition, bank charter, cash app expansion, you know, crypto, all these different things that are happening. So would love to touch on some of those things, what you see in the future and for how that kind of fits into Square's picture, just for the most recent things you guys are still currently innovatively stacking. Well, so those are all separate businesses and they're sort of being organized under, you know, sort of one parent entity. Mm -hmm. um, and sometimes they relate and sometimes they don't. I mean, I think actually title is going to be a fantastic addition, not just because, you know, Jay-Z's an awesome thinker and gives us, you know, sort of a view into this world that, uh, you know, frankly, I think we've been ignoring a little bit, which is, you know, small, small artists. Mm -hmm. And, you know, if you look at the world of the small artist, um, giving them the tools to do their and to do creative work. And I mean, it looks like, look, what, what are you guys doing? I mean, you're doing your own podcast, right? What do I see in the, you know, I see a giant microphone in your face, right? Like that, like this is, this is the world of possibility when you give tools to individuals. Now, the question is what, what would you guys be doing 10 years ago? You would not be podcasting because you don't have distribution. You don't have, mm -hmm. you know, you probably couldn't even afford the recording equipment 20 years ago. So the more we make these tools available for individuals, the more creative stuff we get. So, I mean, I think if you think of Square as a sort of a company that makes wonderful tools for individuals, then titles a great fit. Yeah, I would, I would definitely agree. And, and kind of going back to what you were saying about COVID, we would not be doing this podcast if it wasn't for COVID. If we didn't have, you know, all this extra time on our hands, we were sitting bored and we're like, okay, let's talk to everyone. We're talking to each other about stocks all the time. Like, I think there's, there's a market right now. And we look at this, as you were saying, it was the perfect conditions. There was like 10 million new accounts that were opened up. Everyone was also sitting at home looking for new information. And so it set us up, you know, for success, obviously not to the scale of square, but 
you know, it really did help us. And, and going back to also what you were saying with this early days with Amazon Scare and talking about how these nimble companies are, are able to make pivots or add new legs to them. If, if you could talk to us a little bit about as you guys scale as a big company, right? So you guys have grown astronomically over the past few years, but how do you maintain that nimbleness, would you say, as an entrepreneur? And now you're not talking to 100 people at your company, you're talking to thousands of employees, right? Yeah, well, uh, it's uh, kind of obvious that you didn't read the last third of the book. Um, <laughs> but like, there's a moment, and this is, this is sort of one of the critical ideas. Um, so for your listeners who haven't read it, I really want to get this across. Like there's, there's sort of this line and on one side of the line is all the stuff you know how to do. Right. And this is the world you've been raised in and it's the world of copying stuff. Okay. We're all as humans, really, really good at copying. At the edge of that line is where humanity has no longer figured out how things. Okay. And so at that moment, you then either have to stop moving or you can only progress by doing things in a new way. And doing things in a new way is really awkward. It's, there's no guaranteed success. You can't just copy something that works. Um, I always try to copy something that works. Like that's, that's always my move. But when I get up to that line and I want to move past it, then the, the, the only resource I have is innovation. And the problem is, and this you know, sort of plagued my career early on, is that I didn't recognize when I was on one side of that line or the other. And there's a set of rules that works really, really well if you can copy but if you apply that same set of rules to the world on the other side of the line, they don't work. And so this is why I spent so much time in the book on the last, you know, last third of the book, basically saying, look, you can be a big, big, big company and still have an innovation stack that's protecting you and driving you, in which case you behave this way. You know, you could be a big, big, big successful company and be surrounded by other big, big successful companies, in which case you got to play the copy game. And there are a different set of rules. Now, the interesting thing that I found is that because the English language has no word to differentiate a business person who's copying from a business person who's doing original work, then we can't even have a discussion about this. So, I, I mean, you ask a really good question. What I'm going to tell you is that to answer that question, I would even have to create a new word. Or in the case of a word like entrepreneurship, I would have to dust off its original meaning, which is originally we didn't call entrepreneurs anybody who starts a business. Like these days, you start a business, we call you an entrepreneur. And that's the common use. But 100 years ago, an entrepreneur was something who did something new that had never been done and was probably going to fail, right? So all the guys building airplanes before the Wright brothers were entrepreneurs. And most of them died. You know, mm -hmm. they would jump off a cliff and the wings would collapse. And you've seen all those old movies of, you know, that's what an entrepreneur was. And it turns out that if you understand that there is this different set of behaviors you need when you're in that world, then one of the things you can do is maintain that uh, lead forever. As a matter of fact, I, I differentiate two companies that I call out. One of them is a very, very successful entrepreneurial company that sort of gave up behaving like they had an innovation stack mm -hmm. and another company that maintained it. And then I track them for the next 20 years and you see a huge difference. One is dominant in the world and the other one is you know, a good company. Mm -hmm. So there you go. You know, there, there, there are different ways to behave and you better know what side of the line you're on. I, I remember reading this uh, quote one time that says, sometimes you just got to jump out of the plane and, and grow wings as you fall, you know? And so it's, it's kind of that, that mindset. Yeah, but I mean, that's, that's a load of crap, right? Like, would you do that? <laughs> I would, I would I mean, cause I've got a plane. I, sure I mean, I, I will literally <laughs> take you up 
<laughs> I can, I've got a Seneca. I can fly with the back, with the back door. I do not ne legally need to have the back door open. Like, and like, if you believe that that's the solution, we can test if that'll work. Sure. And well, I, no, yeah. but, but here's, here's the thing. Here's the thing. The reason I'm busting your balls on this is because <laughs> there's a lot of shitty advice that gets given to people who are eager for knowledge and those sort of trite things. Like here's, here's what that says to me. I'm going to go do something stupid that I know is going to fail because I know that I have to behave that way. And that's the wrong message to tell people. I think the right message to tell people is here's a plane, here's a parachute. You probably don't want to use this parachute. Like the only time I'm in a plane with a parachute, I'm in a stunt plane. And if I have to use that parachute, then things have gone really, really badly. Mm. You know, True. I've never deployed a parachute in my life. I've worn them many times, but the parachute to me is this thing that I don't want to use. Okay. Mm -hmm. It's when the wings come off and the tail's friggin' wrapped around the engine and, and, and I'm bailing out. Um, but we, we do a disservice to people who are starting businesses if we don't tell them honestly what the risks are and what mm -hmm. the problems they are likely to encounter and how it's going to feel, which is why I do the last chapter in the book and how it feels. And I know that was a weird chapter to add, but the point is, if you're going to do something that's new and innovative, it is mm -hmm. going to feel extremely lonely. Because what's going to happen the second you do something new is people are going to go, Avi, get, get, get back in the herd. Come, come back. Yeah. Like We're worried about you. Like The people who, who care about you are going to go, what the hell are you doing? Like Why are you even in a stunt plane and why do you have a parachute on? You know, I had every one and, of my teachers in college said this to me when I was starting, like I, I run a hedge fund as like my primary job. And that was every single teacher would take my resume, cut it up and say, you shouldn't do this. This is like a bad thing. Go work for a standard bank. And I was like, I want to make my own way. And it is definitely like a lonelier thing as an entrepreneur, but much more fulfilling. Yeah. I mean, but you better know the real risks. So let's mm -hmm. not let's not kid your listeners about what it takes to actually do something that has not been done before because Absolutely. it's really scary. And, and, and it's not scary because people are jealous or any of that crap. It's scary because people are so used to copying everything they do that if they see you behaving the same way, they go, oh, he's fine. Mm -hmm. But if they see, see you behaving differently and they care about you, they're going to say, hey, man, what are you doing? Mm -hmm. And they're going to try to protect you by doing, they say, come, come, come back, come back to us. Don't do something new. And that's the, that's the thing you got to fight against. Mm -hmm. If you want to do something new, I have a parachute. I work at a corporate job. This is moving from a hobby into kind of a, you know, a, a true passion of mine and growing, but I do have that parachute to that point of, you know, if this were to fail, I'm still doing pretty well at my company. We do want to transition to, to some of your philanthropic and, and cultivation capital, but I guess before we, we jump off of Square here, what do the typical people not know about Square? Is there anything that you're able to share, I guess, that not many people know about Square? I think what people don't know about Square is the amount of money that we leave on the table. Wow. I mean, the, the massive amounts extra that we could be charging for certain things mm -hmm. that we have chosen to price in a way that makes it affordable for everybody as opposed to just you know, a select group. And this has been since day one. I mean, literally when Jack and I came up with the first pricing, it was as tight as we could possibly make it and still have a chance of surviving as a company. And I think if they've seen, you know, some of the hardware that we build, we bust our ass to make this stuff beautiful. We spend all mm -hmm. this time, you know, engineering the stuff that nobody ever sees. And then we give it, you know, we sell it for less than cost, you know, <laughs> and we don't make a big deal of it. Or, or we'll develop some new software product 
and put it out in the market for free or at some you know really knockdown price because we want millions of people to use it. And then you know we make money when millions use it. But like if we had a hundred thousand users, we'd be in trouble. You know, and and I think Square's been really good about that, but I don't think anybody knows it because it's not something you can say publicly. Like it's just it just yeah. sounds so pretentious and pompous to say that. I, which I guess I did. <laughs> oh well. So, you know. But I mean, that, that's, that's that's probably exclusive. the thing. Yeah, I guess I guess that's probably the thing that you know that that, that amazes me because you know I'm I'm on the board and I see the decisions and I see the numbers mm-hmm. and I'm like, like you, you realize we could be charging more for that, yeah. right? Yeah, and, and I know other companies have done that recently. Like PayPal recently upped their fees, and a, a lot of other companies are moving in and stuff. And so it's it's very cool that you guys are still focusing on getting that customer satisfaction, making sure you keep those people for as long as possible. Because as you said, it's a lot easier to monetize millions of users than a hundred thousand. Um, so going into cultivation capital, I was doing a lot of digging into this because this is one of my favorite areas. You know, just investing in general. So I know you guys have 148 companies in the port as the website I just saw, and you guys primarily invest C through Series B. I want to know really what you guys think are the biggest trends, you know, coming in the next decade. I know you have some life sciences, agriculture. So just curious to know about that. So is my name still on the Cultivation Capital website? Uh, yeah. And it's it, it was all over, like when I was looking all over the internet, it was talking about over you it. and, and Shit, yeah. yeah. So they kicked me out of Cultivation Capital two years ago. Um, okay, I'm very and, sorry for that. Yeah, no, no, that's okay. I'll tell you the story because it's kind of funny. They asked me to go start another fund mm-hmm. on fintech, and so I, Rick Holton and I went down to uh, some guys he knows in Nashville who were very, very successful fintech entrepreneurs, and we started this fintech fund. And it was a cultivation capital fintech fund, and then the guys at Cultivation Capital got, I would call it jealous, of <laughs> the success of the fintech fund. And they, they, they basically asked me to choose sides. I said, well, you can't be in both. I was like, wait a second. I started this for us. And they were like, well, you're spending, t- I don't know. It was, it was this weird shit. But they, they basically asked me to pick a side. And I was like, well, I'll go with the side that's not asking me to pick a side. So actually, mm-hmm. Rick Holton, who's an excellent venture capitalist and, and very smart guy, and I got kicked out of Cultivation Capital. So it's funny that Cultivation Capital is still using my name. Uh, I have not been associated with those guys in a couple of years. So I couldn't talk about anything that they're doing. Right. I mean, I'm, I'm invested in some of their funds, but I don't pay any attention. But I mean, I can tell you about Fintop. Fintop's been kicking ass. <laughs> but yeah. uh, cultivation, um, no idea. Let's talk about Fintop a little bit, as well as, you know, looking at some of these industries that we just see as the future. Oftentimes we're talking about genomics. We talk about space travel, robotic surgery, like a lot of these kind of futuristic that is now here today, right? If you weren't doing Square, what other industries do you see coming up in the next three to 10 years, perhaps, that you could see exploding? So um, FinTop's a very simple idea, which is that banks and financial companies are very bad at innovating. And they're bad at innovating fundamentally because they promote people who are very good at not losing money. Um, Innovators lose money a lot of the time. So if you're going to get to be a successful financial company, the first thing you have to do is not lose money, right? So if you're a bank and you're a mediocre bank, you're better than the bank that's really good, but got their safe broken into, right? So you can't be a financial company and, and, and not be conservative. As a result, these financial companies are lousy at innovation. So we know they have to innovate. We know they have to have new products. So what Fintop does, and we do it, I think, sort of brilliantly, is we identify companies that three to five years from now, which is not a hard time horizon to forecast, uh, are going to be 
necessary acquisitions for large companies. So it's kind of boring because none of the FinTop companies are going to IPO. Okay. They're, we're going to turn a $10 million investment into a $100 million investment and sell it off. And then we're going to get, make another $10 million investment, turn it into a hundred and sell it off. You know, so that's what FinTop does. And I say, it's kind of boring. I mean, it makes money, but like, that's the, that's what FinTop's doing. And we really just have a special focus on this, this one little formula. And, and it's almost so reliable that it's not interesting to discuss because it just works. Now, I think in the world of venture capital, it's probably interesting because of the performance relative to other funds, but you know, who cares? Well, I guess you care if you're invested, but I, I, I don't find it to be as interesting as people who are doing stuff that might fail. I mean, FinTop stuff, like even our bearable investments have been pretty good, you know? Mm -hmm. So it's, it's not that interesting. Uh, stuff that to me is really interesting are areas where we don't really have a known solution right now. So decarbonization, like can we economically decarbonize? Uh, electric airplanes, can we figure out a way to make an airplane that, you know, that doesn't pollute? Or can I figure out a way to fuel up uh, a plane with, with something that's not you know, just you know, toxic to the planet? I think there's a lot of interesting areas in life science. Frankly, I don't think space travel is that big a deal. Like, I don't want to go up to space. I mean, it might be fun to be weightless, except that I think you vomit. I don't know. Maybe. We'll see. But, you know, I think, I think we got a lot of stuff down here on Earth that's, that's really going to be interesting. And I think uh, pulling carbon out of the air is going to be a big deal. I also think industries that empower people. And one of the ones that I'm working on sort of part-time right now is uh, building a cheaper diaper. You say, well, what's the big deal about diapers? And the answer is poverty typically starts when a woman has to take care of a baby and can't afford diapers. And you think, oh, well, diapers are cheap. No, they're not. Like, like they're 25 cents a pop. And they're almost double that if you buy them, you know, in these little bodegas and stores that are in the neighborhoods where people don't have Walmarts and Costco's. And so, you know, if we could get the diaper price down by 80%, uh, I think we could stop the cycle of poverty because, you know, what happens is women have, have, have babies and I say women, they, they tend to bear the brunt of this, but it, it also affects young families of all types. You know, they can't afford diapers. And then all of a sudden, if you can't afford diapers, you can't afford daycare, which means one of the parents or the parent is not going to be able to hold down a good job. It's a disaster. So, you know, I think that's an interesting area. Yeah, absolutely. I think anything that's not really huge right now that has the potential to change the world in a beneficial way in the next five to 10 years in a meaningful way that's got this, I just watched you go through this first principles approach from the start of this entire diaper conversation. So I think things in that area, and I'm also a very big fan of life sciences, I would love to be able to elongate my telomeres or whatever's going to end up letting me live a couple extra years or, you know, get those genetic modifications that I need to make sure I can live as long as I need to. Um, but just outside of Square, you know, one thing that really caught my attention is uh, you being appointed as the independent director of the Fed Bank of St. Louis. And I'd really love to know the current state of affairs, the dynamics of the Fed that's going on right now. Obviously, it's been in the news nonstop since COVID started. And people are always talking now about, you know, the inevitable tapering that's going to come. And since you're so close to finance and banking and the Fed as well, would love to hear your thoughts. So I'm the deputy chairman of the St. Louis Fed, and I'm going to be the chairman uh, come January. So I spent a lot of time thinking about this. Uh, I need to preface by saying I'm speaking for myself and not the U.S. Federal Reserve or the Federal Reserve Bank of St. Louis. Let me tell you two things that I think are really important. Uh, the first is that the Fed is a phenomenal institution. Okay, they're politically neutral, which means we're not Republican, we're not Democrat. We don't, we don't, we don't really, you know, play on one side or the other. 
I, I came in under Obama. I served under Trump. I watched the Trump appointees, the Obama appointees. Everybody got along. And because this Fed is not political, the decision-making is really clear-headed. So they're not to appoint or penalize somebody. And what happens is that tends to frustrate presidents because they want certain behavior out of the Fed. And the Fed says, no, we're not going to do it. Or, or the Congress wants something and the Fed kind of goes, no, I think you know this is the best thing to do for the economy. You know, that said, you're in a situation that's unprecedented right now. We've never had a healthy economy. You know, we actually had a healthy economy going into COVID, you know, 11, almost 12 straight years of, you know, consistent growth. And then we took that healthy economy, we shut it down for health reasons. We took a healthy economy and we shut it down for health reasons. And I think that was a good decision, but we also have never done that before. So, you know, back to the innovation stack, like, well, well, where's our precedent for this? What's the playbook for shutting down a healthy economy? And the answer is, we don't have one. So we're figuring it out. So, I mean, yes, there was a lot of QE going on, qu quantitative easing. That's basically the Fed buying assets. And there's a lot of stuff that was done in an emergency mode, but it's also done to keep a healthy economy healthy. And we're predicting 6 7% growth this year. I mean, that's going to be amazing. Like, our economy doesn't grow 3%. And these guys mm -hmm. are looking at 6 Like, we could outgrow China this year, you know? And, and the reason for that is that we have a lot of very, very smart, thoughtful people who are trying to do the best things that they can. And monetary policy is kind of weird because it's a very blunt instrument. So they don't get, you know, precise control. You know, Jay can get up one morning and tank the markets if he wants to by, uh, <laughs> you know, making some crazy comments. But like he doesn't do that. Um, and neither did Janet and, and neither did, you know, I basically you have very, very responsible people doing this stuff. So. Look, I know it's not perfect. Uh, we're just coming through a pandemic. But what I would say the best thing we can do is trust and, and largely ignore. Like mm -hmm. I don't spend every morning looking at interest rate data. I don't, I don't try to guess which way the FOMC is going to vote. I mean, I look at the data and then we all make our decisions and then we, we cast our votes and that's the way you know, things go. And if we voted wrong, we can undo it. So a lot of this stuff is, it's important but it's, it's important more because there's a news cycle that follows it, I think, more closely than is healthy. So, mm -hmm. look, I can tell you, I just went to a long Fed meeting this week. Things are okay. It looks like things are fine. You know, now, could, could things blow up? Do we have a ton of debt? Yes. Could the dollar fail to be a reserve currency? Yes. Could there be some sort of massive other calamity? Could there be a second you know, a uh, pandemic because people aren't getting back. You know, there are all these risks, but, you know, generally at this point, things seem pretty awesome. This has been phenomenal. And, and I guess probably just to wrap this up, I would love to hear just any, like the one or two pieces of advice for aspiring entrepreneurs. Uh, I know you touched on this a little bit previously, but I would love to hear if you're talking to, I hear your kids, you know, in the background, of course, but when you talk with your kids about their futures, like, how do you take a look at that? And, and what kind of message do you send to, to some of these young folks that are, are aspiring entrepreneurs? Well, I mean, I guess my first advice would be know what the word entrepreneur used to mean. That word exists for a very specific reason. And 150 years ago, this economist who was studying these weirdos who were changing the world, and at this time it was inventing airplanes and developing stuff that you know was really world-changing, that word was necessary to describe those behaviors. And since we've lost the word, since that word has just come to mean anyone who starts a business, uh, we've lost the ability to discuss how it's different to do something that's world-changing than something that's just incremental. 
and look, I'm not, I'm not knocking incremental. Okay. 90% of the stuff I do is just incremental. As a matter of fact, most of the stuff that Square does these days, even though it's a very entrepreneurial company is just like, oh, well, we've, we've done the big leap and now we're just going to make it a little better, a little better, a little better, a little better, you know, um, nothing wrong with that, but it's a different set of skills. Okay. And the whole reason I wrote the book is to differentiate this, this line that because we have had no word for a hundred years, we have not even have a, had a conversation about the best practices for the innovator, as opposed to how a you know, normal business should behave. So that's, um, that would be my message for aspiring entrepreneurs. Learn the difference and uh, learn your history. That is massively powerful. And, and I think going back to this world changing idea is thinking about what we're doing on a very small scale in a microcosm, but hopefully we can inspire someone. I know we've had many stories. We talked about genomics once and someone's parent actually ended up extending potentially their life by having them go to their doctor and, and ask about some new treatments and things like that. That is very powerful. So thank you so much, Jim, for, for joining us today. I really enjoyed the conversation and everyone should go check out the book. It's Innovation Stack. Uh, I think you can get it on Amazon or pretty much anywhere. So everywhere. Uh, yeah. appreciate you joining us here today. Thanks guys. All the best. That was absolutely incredible. Jim is a brilliant guy, even though he kind of took a jab at me, I'll take it. I'm a big fighter. I'm ready to go. So a lot of learnings from that. I can't wait to read the rest of the book, but uh, before we go here, we want to get into next week of earnings. we got another big week ahead of us after that fang week Monday, we got Simon property SPG is a name we've certainly touched on in the past Tuesday. We touched on Baba, you know, let's see where China goes from here. BP, Under Armour, Eli Lilly, Lyft, Alterix, which is a company we haven't talked to for quite some time, Activision. And the one I'm probably most anticipating and, and a lot of our listeners is around skills. So that'll be Tuesday after the bell. Wednesday, before we got open, we got GM, CVS, Kraft, Royal Caribbean. And after the bell, a few favorites. We got Roku, Uber, Etsy, Fastly, Wynn, and Mercado Libre. Thursday pre-market, Big news again here with Moderna, with the, everything that's happening, obviously with COVID. We got Viacom, Fiverr, Wayfair, Yeti. And after the bell, the one and only Square, which we just touched on. We also got Cloudflare, aka Net, MGNI, Beyond Meat, Fulgent Genetics, and Zillow Group. And Friday's usually a quieter day for earnings, but not this week. We got some weed stocks coming in with Kronos and Canopy Growth, Norwegian Cruise Lines, and one very near and dear to my heart, DraftKings, as a Big fantasy sports player. I absolutely love that. Well, so we'll see what's happening here before the NFL season. And next week, of course, I'm going to be getting ready for my wedding. So thankfully, we've pre-recorded an evergreen episode here with Dr. Adam, who is a certified psychologist. We're going to be really focusing on the mentality around trading, how not to go on tilt, how to kind of hone everything in and keep things close to your heart. And speaking of pre-recording today, Tony, you said you wanted to talk about Tony's new model. So I'm a little nervous. Is the bonsai dead or where are you going with this new model? No, the bonsai is just going to get some new water. It's just going to grow a little bigger, in my opinion. And honestly, talking to Jim was just like breathtaking. I've learned so much. I'm going to rewatch that interview like 50 times and, and just pick up anything he just leaves as a nice little tidbit. And so honestly, I think he told us more than he should have. But I'm very excited to, to see their earnings report in the next coming years. Um, so in terms of this like new model and everything, I just think that there's a lot of difficulty around actually like how to value a company. And I think we should definitely dig into that really deeply and explain why these heads of the table have gotten to where they are and how they'll continue to grow in the future. Right. You see Fang and people are starting to talk about what's the first $10 trillion company. Right. So the number of zeros will continue to just add over time as we get more population. Right. And more money in the system in the world. 
but we're here to show you guys like how to value that in context. And that's what we're going to be doing in the next couple episodes. Super excited next week for uh, Dr. Adam. Behavioral psychology is literally one of my favorite topics in the market and probably more than half of what I actually use to invest. So can't wait for you guys to hear that. So guys, we'll be back next week. And Avi, Mr. Mash, congratulations on Mrs. Mash and Mr. Mash getting married and all that beautiful jazz. I'll be there too. So I uh, can't wait to break a plate or give a horrible toast and just play some like Georgia, Georgia at your wedding or something. <laughs> Probably be dancing the horror or something. <laughs> we'll introduce you to throwing it up on the chair. But uh, thank you guys so much. I'm super excited to get married. Can't wait. It's been a long time coming. I feel like everyone knows my fiance at this point. But uh, as always, Tony, I can't do that as always. You say as always. Since it's my wedding, we are going to bring in my fiance for uh, a quick as always, Tony. Lens, tell them people what's up. As always, Tony, leave him something to pound. Oh, that was amazing. I'm pounding the table on full time here. Yeah, I'm pounding the table on uh, the MASH family and I'm pounding the table on Square. Be back next week, guys, with more. That's a big move. Big money, big moves. That's a big move. I'm making big moves. That's a big move. Big money, big moves. That's a big move. play, don't talk about it. Master P, I'm about it, about it. This one here for all that try to count me out and they still counting honestly i never doubt it say the top is never crowded well i'm trying to climb the mountain till i need a few accounting stock is rising perfect timing i'm in prickle with the tribe shawty sliding she wants sushi she want eel sauce for the rice i just peel off with the light took her heels off for the ride don't say real talk just a lie i'm a real one i provide y'all drip on a hundred